Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. All right, welcome everyone uh, to the Founders Forward podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lex Euler. Uh, she's currently the founder and CEO of Billbox, spent her last 10 years in product design and tech, also happens to be a holistic health coach. Uh, I think we met on the best of terms. Like when I think about what I want every customer saying to me, it's what happened. Uh, Lex signed up for a trial visible. She, uh, I emailed her a personalized note. And then she's like, this is amazing, tweeted it out. And then uh, like two weeks later, uh, I get a DM uh, about a piece of content we wrote about fasting. And she was like, hey, this is kind of dangerous. You should tell the other side of this story. Uh, and I would love to be on your podcast. So that's how we met. Uh, did I miss anything there, Lex? No, that you're totally right. It was, uh, I really appreciate good customer service. You reached out, asked if there was anything you could do to help. And the fact that you even offered to put one of your people on moving my stuff into visible for me was very cool. I was already like pretty deep in it, but, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was great. And I wasn't actually, you have another question after this that I can elaborate on. Like my question of do do you hate us? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't. I I don't at all. Um, And that's why I messaged you privately. It was not, it was not a, I hate you or this is bad business or anything like that. But the truth is, is a lot of people don't know about fasting. A lot of people don't know about eating disorders. And I personally feel a responsibility to help educate people on that. And for me, when I sign up for a newsletter um, from a VC CRM tool, and then I get a newsletter about fasting, it's just like, are these people actually well informed on this? Um, and it seems like no, which is totally fine. And I feel like you guys have done a good job at addressing it. Yeah. So for just some for some context of people are jumping into this kind of for the first time, uh, we did an interview about intermittent fasting. And that was included in our weekly newsletter. Uh, it was like part of a multivariant test. So I think like the headline for the for that 700 people got was like how fasting can uh, provide clarity. And Lex, first of all, thank you for uh, not publicly bashing us. Uh, like I like it was just like you you kind of tweeted it out, but didn't say who it was from or for me. Uh, so one, I think that's a, a great way to handle something. Thank you for that. And um, I decided to take ownership of it. And I just said, hey, this was us. And I actually took public ownership of it because I felt that was important. Uh, and so I guess maybe just getting right into it, you know, because then I issued the the note to people saying, hey, we're going to get to the bottom of this and talk to some other people. I had actually an overwhelming amount of people reply back and be like, hey, uh, I've been intermittent fasting for the longest time. It's one of these great things for me. So is it that intermittent fasting is, I guess, wrong or is it is it wrong for maybe for certain people or I guess you know what's your I'll just hand it over to you like what's your what's your whole spin or or take on it yeah no I I don't think it's wrong for everybody I mean I don't claim to be an expert on every person's individual health but I do think that we need to acknowledge the risks of promoting things like this um like the truth is, is that eating disorders have the highest fatality rate of any mental illness which a lot of people don't know so 
we can't be flippant about sharing these things. And there does need to be, you know, I'm not someone who's easily triggered and needs a content warning on everything. But when we are promoting things um, around health and wellness, especially around fasting and things that, you know, very much do play into eating disorders, I think we need to understand who our audience is and make sure that we're being, you know, very clear about risks involved and that kind of thing. I mean, I personally don't think intermittent fasting is good um, in general, but I understand that there's there's two sets. There's two sets of data that could say, you know, it's good or it's bad. Um, it very much, I guess, is an individual thing. But I can say that for the, you know, tons of people who suffer from eating disorders, uh, it's it's not healthy and it's you know potentially fatal to be promoting content like this. Yeah, for for us, uh, you know, one of the things I decided to do, uh, I guess, even when we started this podcast back in the fall was we started thinking about our audience, which is kind of two sets of people. Uh, for the most part, call it 80% are founders or, or kind of operators of a startup. And the other 20% are investors. And I, I think wellness and health for founders is important uh, it, because you know, you're more likely to be prone to depression, substance abuse, addiction. I think these things are you know, pretty well documented. And so we said, hey, we should start thinking about uh, highlighting things in, in wellness in different ways um, uh, to, you know, do become a better operator or, or founder. Uh, clearly, we, we might have missed the mark with, with fasting. Is there anything else you think I should be, any other trends that you see online that you're like, ooh, that could be dangerous or like, hey, maybe you shouldn't think about, you know, even talk, touching that subject because it be, should, should be controversial. Um, hmm. I would say that the current landscape of what health and wellness looks like on the internet in general is fairly dangerous, uh, because a lot of people consider themselves health experts that are not health experts. And so there's, I mean, you can read about this, but there's very much a trend of promoting eating disorders under the guise of other things. So promoting eating disorders under the guise of intermittent fasting or promoting eating disorders under, you know, different diets that come out and things like that. And it's like most of these things are tricking your body into thinking that you're starving and you don't have access to food. And so for me, like, I don't, I'm not sure that there's a specific trend outside of health and wellness is a trendy thing that people need to be educated on uh, before they promote it. I mean, there's, I, I'm not, I, I think I have a hard time with people who aren't experts in health and wellness using health and wellness as marketing material is my general feeling on it. Um, but just making sure that when people are publishing content around this stuff, they've done their research and they understand the risks involved in promoting these things. Like, did you know that, you know, eating disorders have the highest fatality rate of any mental illness? Or did you know that, you know, 40 million Americans suffer from them. Like things like that need to be taken into account when publishing this content. And how much is that is on us as a company, right? Um, versus on, right? So, I mean, we should vet, you know, who we have on, right? Is Lex an expert in this? And should we highlight her, her story or an author's book or, you know, whomever? Uh, and how much is that left to the audience for them to make their own decision? Um, I mean, that, that's a good question. I think that you, I think that there is a level of diligence that needs to be done on the person publishing it. Um, 
the audience, I mean, the thing is like, I, I as an audience here, I got a headline in my email, which I'm actually not even sure I signed up for a newsletter. It might've just came when I signed up for Visible, which is totally fine. I think you guys publish good content, but like, I, it wasn't up to me to decide whether I got an email newsletter that said fasting is good for founder clarity. Um, mm -hmm. Now, luckily, I met like a really good place in my own health and mental space. But, you know, me a couple years ago, that could have sent me into a tailspin. And I think, and I mean, this is, I, I try not to focus a ton on like gender stuff. But like, VC culture and investment culture and stuff like this primarily is focused towards men and eating disorders more often than not affect women. And so for me, it's like, oh, if you knew that your audience included women and you knew of, you know, 5% or up to 10% of women suffer from eating disorders, you probably wouldn't have sent this. So, yeah. you know, yes, I think that there is a level of you know, I am responsible for the content I consume and which I didn't actually listen to that full podcast until I told you I would listen to it. And it was a good podcast. Like that the majority of it wasn't even about fasting, but I wasn't, I, I didn't have a choice in consuming the headline, which in my opinion was like fairly misleading or like not a full picture of what we were talking about. So uh, thank you for that. Two follow-ups. One, all of our users do opt into the weekly newsletter. So when you were signing up for the account, you must've checked the box. It's not opt out. I feel like that's pretty good design ethos. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two, I do agree with you though, by the way. I told uh, Matt who runs the newsletter, I said, hey, we should at least avoid clickbaity headlines, especially when touching something like, you know, food and eating and that. Okay, a couple of things. You're a, you're a holistic health coach. Any objection if we were to talk about uh, meditation, breathing exercises or anything around kind of like headspace or you think that's like a safer area to, to explore maybe versus something that has to do with your diet? Yeah, I think that that's totally safer. I mean, there's very few people that I think we could find information on who have died from focusing on their breathing or that kind of thing. So yeah, uh, yeah it, feel, it feels safer. And I'm also not saying that you can't talk about food or diet or anything like that. I'm saying that there does need to be like a level of research that goes into it and potentially you know, even when you were publishing that podcast, write it or the write up in the newsletter saying, you know, this might not work for everybody. Or yeah. we, if you're someone who's suffered from an eating disorder or have concerns about it, here's links to some resources, that kind of thing. Just when, when we're talking about health and wellness, I think that there just needs to be, you have to be delicate. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, I don't like to be the like snowflake person, um, which is how I feel like a lot of people view things like this but it's like no this is life or death for a lot of people yeah and and like i said i couldn't thank you enough for, for reaching out and uh part of that you said hey mike i i suffered from an eating disorder um and and then you started publicly sharing right around this time too kind of this is the impetus of why billbox was started uh was like through your own trauma so maybe kind of switching a little bit from kind of the, this whole health and wellness thing, which I think is directly related to what you're doing. Uh, I mean, you want to touch on why you started Billbox? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Billbox definitely comes from like, I, I grew up with an eating disorder. I started 
restricting calories in high school around 14 by 16. I was hospitalized for many a weeks, uh, like very on the verge of death. And from 16 to 26, like that has been an off and on thing. I'm, I'm 28 now. And I would say I'm in like a really good place with that, but I'm not sure it's something that ever really goes away. But Billbox is focused on the financial aspect of medical care and things like that. And eating disorders are typically not covered very well by insurance because the DSM doesn't have a criteria for treatment that is considered effective. And so it's like a death sentence. So insurance is like, well, none of these people actually recover from it. So we don't actually want to cover medical care for it. So my parents refinanced their home to pay for it and later filed for bankruptcy. And so I am using Billbox as a way to help people you know, improve their financial health, which in turn improves mental health and improves physical health. And, and can we get into like a little bit of like that, that uh, financial piece? It sounds like that's an important part, right? It's so you, you're helping from what I understand, at least on the, when I was kind of, well, one, I'm an investor. We'll talk about that next. Um, but you're, you're improving it through helping build and establish credit. Is that right? Yeah. So we make the process of paying medical bills easier by using texts and emails to reach patients um, from, you know, when they get their first bill instead of the bill in the mail that everybody forgets about uh, by allowing patients to select a payment plan to pay um, over the course of six months or 12 months. And then in turn, they can improve their credit score by having that submitted to Experian and TransUnion. I love it. And this is relatively new, right? So when did when did you when did you like quote unquote start Billbox? Yeah, so officially in November, um, the idea started coming together in July of 2020. But November is when I finally incorporated and was like, I'm going to take this seriously, and then talk to my manager at Mixmax early December and let him know that I was going to be leaving to spend my time on this. Are you still at Mixmax, or you're gone? I'm still at Mixmax. I'm actually, I waited. My backfill started January 4th and I said I would stay on a couple of weeks to onboard her. So uh, middle of next week is the end of my time there. Okay, cool. I love when you um, hear that story where, you know, you're starting a company and you're also like working a full-time job. Uh, Cause I think a lot of times, especially like investors will say, I'm not going to invest unless you're all in doing it. And you know, 100% of your time. Like if you're moonlighting yeah. and doing something else, I'm not in. And I think we're starting to see that's actually like not the case. Like Amanda Getz, who we, she came on the podcast starting mm-hmm. a um, hospital wise. She's a, she was on and we were talking about her. She's even splitting time right now. Half of her weeks with uh, house of wise and half is with um, Teal. And it's cool to hear other stories. Cause a lot of times, especially underrepresented founders, uh, don't have the ability just to go all in on something and not get like, yeah. a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, Amanda is a perfect example of um, another single mom. Like neither of us could have afforded to just quit our jobs to go full-time on something that wasn't generating revenue yet and where we couldn't cut ourselves a paycheck yet. So um, it is like, there is a very specific type of person who can go all in with no product and mo- no paycheck uh, but if investors only invest in those people, they're missing out on like a huge market of people who are willing to work super hard to get where they're at. Um, even if it means, you know, for me, what that looks like is working excessive hours at Mixmax and then getting off and working until seven o'clock, putting my son to bed and then waking up or then like getting out of his bed yeah. and going back to work until two o'clock in the morning. And so 
Um, obviously that's not like long-term sustainable, but was enough for me to make sure that this was something that I wanted to do and did want to pursue full-time. I also love Mixmax so much that part of it is like, even if I could have financially done it without Mixmax, I wanted to make sure that I had something here before I decided to leave because I've just had such an incredible time there. It's, it was a really hard decision for me to leave my job. Wow. Yeah. Pro Mixmax. There you go. Check it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great uh, company to work for there we go i love it we're, we'll, we'll at mention them maybe we can get uh selfishly a retweet or something from them so uh <laughs> pro mix max check i mean their tools are great too like uh yeah. you know, integrates with gmail and everything uh okay so you're 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 and you were by yourself right you didn't even have any co-founders at this point uh, in november that's correct yeah and i i still don't have a co-founder i have i have a team behind me but not an official co-founder not an official co-founder so like Aiden, who I think I saw recently, is he considered a co-founder or kind of early CTO partner? Or, or what do you consider like some of these early folks that are that are jumping on board with you? Yeah. So Adrian is our CTO, but he's not a co-founder. He but he came on as our CTO. He starts February 1st, which is super exciting. His getting his offer letter back as an acceptance has been the most exciting part of this journey. I was I like danced in my kitchen and I am fairly low reactionary like I don't get super excited about much or like super upset about much and so I think even the people in my household were like oh wow something very cool must have just happened how, how did you guys get what was what was that relationship like like how long have you known them and, and how long how did it all come how, come together <laughs> so I have followed Adrian on Twitter for about a year he tweets a lot about hiring in the tech industry and um underrepresented people in the tech industry. And I just, he's someone that I knew we aligned on values and he did not follow me back. And one night I had this huge list of CTO recommendations from one of our investors that I was going through. And I was just like, this isn't the person, this isn't the person, this isn't the person. And I saw him tweeting about entertaining an offer from another pretty big company. And I was like, and he, he didn't seem sure about it. And so I DM'd him and this was on like a Thursday night and was like, hey, I'm looking for a CTO if you're interested in chatting. He messaged me back right away and we started emailing. We switched to email and he was like, let me know when's good for you to talk. And I was like, I would get on a phone call with you right now. It was like 10 o'clock at night <laughs> if you were interested. Otherwise, you let me know your schedule and I'll make it work. And I'm looking at my calendar where I have like 14 meetings a day scheduled. Like, I have no idea how I'm going to make it work, but I will cancel any of these meetings for this guy. And he was like, here's my cell phone number. So I just called him that night. We talked for about an hour and a half. He immediately understood what I was building. He sent me his resume. He had been a CTO before. He had also worked at a couple hospitals. And I was just like, this is my guy. And so I... I mean, I had a couple of our investors who were engineers vet him and like go through his resume and his LinkedIn and uh, made sure that I wasn't totally crazy, but they were like, this is a great guy. Trust your gut here. And so I extended an offer the next week and he accepted the, that Friday. Fuck. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. You're, you're team Twitter. I'm so team Twitter. I live on Twitter. It's interesting. I love it too. Uh, it, it comes up actually quite a bit in this podcast. I mean, I guess maybe that's why is because we source a lot of people from Twitter. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you love about it? And then what do you, what do you wish it had or, or something maybe that's missing or, or is there anything you would change about it? 
I mean, their DM section is completely out of control. I wish the search function in Twitter's uh, DMs worked better. I also would wish bookmarking worked better. Um, but for the most part, I love it. I mean, most of my investors that are now on the table are people who knew me from Twitter. Um, both of our early distribution partners are people I know from Twitter. Every person I have brought on to the team, I know from Twitter. So, and also like I've met some of my closest friends, like this last summer I spent in Chicago and a girl I follow on Twitter posted a mural that she had painted and it was of a bookstore right in front of my apartment I was in for the summer. I messaged her, I was like, are we neighbors? And like, we're inseparable now. And even though I'm back in LA, we FaceTime daily. So it's like some of my closest friends are people I've met on the internet. It's, it's interesting. It seems like it's like one of those things like you're either in or you're out on Twitter and not, not meaning like it's an exclusive club, but it's like you kind of live there and you love it or it's kind of like, yeah, it's not part of who I am. There's like no like middle ground. It feels like with with like Twitter. I feel like there. No, no, no. I disagree. I think that there are okay. people that Twitter is like very middle ground for them. Um, I have a friend who's on Twitter who actually just drove down from Chicago to live with me to help me with Billbox. And he's like, somewhat on Twitter, but like it doesn't consume his life or really have like a huge impact. He checks it like a couple times a week. So those people exist, but okay. um, I don't know. For me, the internet, I've always been like a hundred percent in. Like I was totally the girl on Tumblr with, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. And like, that was like my brand all from like middle school into college. And so for me, progressing over to Twitter is like not super surprising. Yeah. I just, I love being online and I always have. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, you know, we've been talking, so you're a designer uh, yeah. by, by trait, right? Uh, and you, I think from what I've seen, you even have a, another designer on the team. How important is design going to be uh, in terms of your experience, the, 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 the bill box, you know, organization, is it going to be like design led? What does that look like for you guys? How are you thinking about how your expertise with design, uh, plays a role in, in the product and business and, and company? Yeah. So design, we're definitely a design led company. And I think that that's what's good for business. And I think that companies that don't bring design to the table early and often are going to get left behind because design is so much more than what things look like. We are responsible for language and vision and how things work and how people interact with the product and how we solicit feedback and uh, how we test things. So it's like design is just so much more than when I even started 10 years ago. And it was like, oh, let's, you know, change the color of this button or something. There's just so much more that goes into it. So design for us is everything from strategy to user research to, you know, customer support, even on like, how do we solicit feedback and things like that. So for us, yeah, we're very much uh, design led. And it's also, we're a FinTech company in a healthcare use case. So we have to immediately build trust. Like yeah. if people don't trust us and we send them to a shady website where they're not sure that their money is going to like go to the right place, like nobody is going to use this. So for us, design is a way to instantly make us trustworthy, instantly show that, you know, we care about these things and you know, we put enough of an emphasis on what things look like that you can trust that we've like also, you know, use that same amount of like detail in data security and all of the other aspects of the product. Trust is freaking huge. Um, takes forever to get and a second to lose. I literally uh, was writing uh, for kind of a recent product brief I was doing 
the whole theme of it was like trust, like where can users trust us in our application and just the UX of it and where can they not? And let's quickly identify places where users might uh, not trust visible. Uh, and when I say trust, like, you know, do I trust that this email is going to go out at this time I said it should? Yep. Uh, and, and how do we fix that? Because um, I think it's just like, there's so much now uh, that's out in the market. It's like, trust is, is key. I guess I don't have a follow-up question. I just want to say I agree with trust. Uh, but yeah. my follow-up question um, about user customer feedback is what, you know, so you do the, you've done this for a living. Uh, we have a lot of founders listening that maybe aren't uh, product, you know, designers or even skew product that are more technical or, or maybe sales in, in product market fits so key early on. What have you seen work in terms of soliciting feedback? Like how should I solicit feedback from customers or potential customers and what should I listen to and what should I maybe discard? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like how to solicit it, I think you did a really good job with visible um, and something that I plan to be very similar with on the billbox side, which is my inbox is open. And like, yes, at some point that means someone else has to manage it for me and like keep track of it. But like you made yourself available if I had questions and I think that's so important. So you know, being a leader of a company means being someone that your users can go to if they have questions or concerns. Um, I am not a huge fan, honestly, just of the like little chat boxes that pop up on websites. Um, to me, that's a place that I, I don't think is people want instant results and instant responses that way, which is something a lot of companies like can't do. And so I think that that's usually a bad user experience. Um, but yeah, I, I think just being available and saying like, if you have any questions or concerns, actually there's a great example. Um, Carbon Health just released some sub product on vaccine distribution and they have a box on their website. I think I tweeted about it that says like, do you see something wrong here or like whatever? Email us and let us know. And I think that that's super important. Just like saying, you know, if, if we got something wrong, let us know. If there's something you wanna see here that we don't have, let us know. I love that. That's a great idea. Yeah, the, the chat thing's interesting. Uh, we do have the intercom chat widget in our app and we've been, uh, but we respond within five minutes uh, is the median response time. It's, it's like ingrained into how we support customers uh, because if I see a chat widget on a website and I start using it, I expect instant results. And so that's what the, the, we've conditioned the team and, and myself that like, if someone writes it, we're gonna get back to you right away. Um, but yeah, if you can't, I think it's always important to, to not have it. One of the funniest things in the world to me is that Intercom was like one of the you know pioneers of this, in, in, at least in terms of getting it distributed all over the web. And now they don't even offer it as like support. Like anytime I write an Intercom, it takes like a week to hear back now, uh, which is pretty ironic when you think about it. They're trying to go like all automated chatbot or whatever. So it's not great. Uh, in terms of kind of last maybe design related thing is we were talking before the recording and, and I was talking about found co-founders or founders of a business. And I think for the longest time, the archetype of a co-founder wasn't necessarily a designer. It was maybe, you know, someone technical paired up with a salesperson or two technical people. Uh, you're a full-fledged designer. Uh, and it seems like we're seeing more designers as, as founders, you know, 
why do you think that is? Or, 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 you know, are we kind of to the point where every founding team should have a, a designer on it? I mean, yeah, I would argue every founding team should have a designer on it, yeah. but, um, but I understand that that's, that not everybody would agree with that. And I obviously have like some slight bias there, but um, yeah, kind of what we were talking about is I would say half of the people on my cap table would say I'm a technical founder and half of them would say I wasn't and I don't, I don't really even care, uh, which I don't, I don't sure. mean either direction there. But um, for me, I think a big thing that we've seen over the last few years is design being included in business strategy and having a seat at the table. And then designers realizing like, we really do impact every part of the business. Um, we, you know, impact product, we impact like strategy across the entire thing, we impact customer support, we impact retention, we impact sales. So for me, it was like, I'm already doing all of these things anyways. And I'm like interacting with engineers on a daily basis. And I'm interacting with product teams and people in leadership positions. And I'm like, I'm already doing this. Like, it wouldn't be that hard for me to do this with my own idea. So I think that I've talked to other founders who have design backgrounds, and they feel the same way. They're like, we, we are a little bit of all of the teams we see at every successful startup anyways. So that means that I get to fall into a really unique CEO position where I can execute product design and I can communicate with engineers and I can write product specs and scoping docs and like basic, you know, PM things. And I also can sell things. Like I've been selling things to engineers for 11 years. When they tell, <laughs> like they're like, we can't really do that. And I'm like, let me tell you, we can do it. And this is how we're going to do it. So like, I feel like a big part of design is sales. Like, selling my product manager on it, selling the VP of product on it. Um, like getting buy-in is such a huge part of design. So um, I, I think I've excelled on the like sales side of things here because of spending 10 years as a designer. Yeah. It's funny. I was just thinking about that. Anna, who's one of our product designers, she sits in like every meeting, um, like because we have product meetings, we have go-to-market meetings and she is like on all of them uh, because yeah. it touches like every part of the business. So we, we touched on fundraising. I want to kind of circle back there. So you started the company in November. Uh, if you go take a look at your Twitter feed, uh, you know, I think there was some chatter about people saying, hey, look, it's so easy. Or it looks so easy how, how you raise money for, for Billbox. And that's never the case, right? I, I think it's always challenging uh, to raise money. And I guess, you know, how, what was your process like that maybe made it appear easy um, but like, how, is, how have you found fundraising and I guess maybe talk through like your process, how you approached it. And, and then I guess I have a follow-up question, but I'll hit pause there. Well, cool, yeah. Um, I mean, I think what makes it look easy is how fast everything has moved. I think that's why people think it looks easy. That being said, like I wasn't super connected to the VC world. Like I was a product designer with a lot of like designer friends, but that was really it. And I think where Grady Tesk is an old client of mine and he kind of summarized this really well in a tweet where he said, you know, I found, I like mobilized a couple people that did a lot of the work for me. And that's true. And they were people I had helped with no expectation of anything in return. They were people I had built a website for, for free. Like I was just like, yeah. oh, you need a website? I'll build you a website tonight. And like sent it out. And those were the same people who were like, hey, here's a screenshot of my cab table. Do you want intros to any of these people? And I was like, that person, that person, that person. Um, 
So, I mean, from November until now, like basically what happened is I tweeted about this idea I had and that I had been working on it lightly. And that was in November. It gained a bunch of traction. Uh, there were tons of people who were like, oh yeah, I didn't qualify for a mortgage because of a medical bill or, you know, I couldn't get this apartment or I couldn't get a business loan because of a, you know, $120 medical bill I didn't know existed. And so it was like, this tweet was generating people validating the problem. And then there were people who were like, if this had come as a text message to my phone or, you know, people who had said, I didn't get a bill because I moved from New York to New Jersey during the pandemic and now it's in collections. Like I was like validating my idea just off of these random tweet replies. Yeah. And then investors became interested and they started DMing me. I think I, because I wasn't even a company yet, I just told them I'm not fundraising and that immediately like <laughs> then there was FOMO then they were like well when are you going to be and I'm like I, I I don't know so eventually I got on a call with uh Dayton Mills from Branch and at the end of our call he was like I will give you a thousand dollars to incorporate right now and I was like okay I have a thousand dollars like that's not the problem I'm just like not really sure that this is like something that I want to move forward with right now like it was like December. I'm like, the, the year is ending. We're going into a holiday season. Nobody's going to be fundraising during this. And I was totally wrong. So I'm happy he pushed me in that direction. But um, from there, it was like, I, he made a couple intros for me. A couple other people made some intros for me. I closed the first VC I pitched. Um, and I also made sure I was pitching people who could be partners in other ways. So I have, you know, a couple of angel investors who are also healthcare providers that, you know, will be pilot partners. So just try to be very, very, very strategic. But a, lo a lot of other people did the like early work for me. They made intros for me. I didn't send a single cold email to anyone. Um, mostly it was people reaching out to me. Or like people I know reaching out to me being like, hey, this person wants to talk to you. Can I like give them your email address? And I'm over here like, I, yeah, you can obviously give them my email address. <laughs> like, I don't understand this world. Like, how you, they can reach me in my DMs. This isn't difficult. So took some calls. I, I took a lot of calls, though. Like, that's what, it, like, it happened very fast. But I had two weeks off at Mixmax um, because of the holidays. And I was like, I'm giving myself two weeks to validate that I can do this. And if in those two weeks I have raised X amount of money by the end of it, then I will leave my job. And I did. Um, that was, I was able to do that. I brought some VCs on. I brought some angel investors on. And now we're like in the process of closing our round. I'm like still accepting commits from people, but not closing people. Cause I want to make sure we fill this like last couple hundred K with people that I'm like obsessed with. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been my process. It sounds like a lot of that was like almost building in, in the open, right? Uh, where deck, yeah. you're just like, Hey, I got this idea. Cause it, it was wild that you started in November. And you're here now. I didn't. I had no idea who you, who you were. Uh, and for we must follow similar people or whatever because I, I kept seeing you and Billbox pop up in my feed. And so I was like, oh my god, Billbox must be like the hottest company, um, <laughs> or like you know, like been around for a, for a while because I kept seeing chatter happening about it. And it sounds like it's a lot of that is just like building in the open, and and then you were just getting validation, and then and then. 
and then these people validating your idea with the pro their problems are already like every investor is like, oh yeah, I'm like, yeah, clearly like this is a problem because I'm seeing everyone talk about this problem, but you, the company, which is even more validation, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which is crazy. And one of the coolest things I found then is you also are doing uh, part of this round on WeFunder, which is a crowdfunding site. And that's where I participated. And I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world when you put some of this round on WeFunder. Why did you do that? What, cause like sometimes, you know, if you, there's this notion that if you're, if you have to go crowdfund, you know, it's not a great business or whatever, clearly that's not the case. So like, why did you put part of this round on a crowdfunding site? Yeah. So, I mean, super early on, I had people interested in investing who weren't accredited investors. And I was like, I, I mean, I'm very outspoken on Twitter about just like gatekeeping in general. So it was like not surprising that I had a problem with accreditation status being required. Yeah. And, and then I, you know, I did a lot of research on why those things existed. And it's like, oh, these are laws that went into effect during the Great Depression so that people, you know, weren't screwed over. And, you know, it's not, you, accreditation statuses are supposed to go away anyways because of the job doc that Obama put into place with the FEC is so slow about everything that it just hasn't happened yet. And so I was like, I would like to open this up. But the other reason is because a lot of, a lot of investors want you to raise a friends and family round first. They're like, if people who know you don't believe in you, then like, why should we? but they don't take into account that the majority of people don't have accredited friends and family. Like yeah. I'm building a company after saying my parents filed for bankruptcy over a hospital stay. Like these are not people who, you know, have make $200,000 a year, or have a million dollar net worth. So uh, for me, it was just like, I'm going to throw this up. That being said, WeFunder was a ton of work. Um, yeah. It's, way, it's, it's, yeah. The setup process of that was like harder harder than like anything else in this process it was it was very time consuming I would have started way sooner if I had known how time consuming it would be but it was it was really tough that being said I raised seventy thousand dollars there driving no ads to it I've done nothing they give you a playbook of things to do to like increase you know mm -hmm. investment there and I did none of that like I just went through what they require you to do yeah and I mean raising seventy thousand dollars from like mostly just my friends and like people on Twitter who I know was has been very validating and like oh clearly this is a problem and like everyday people view this as a solution that they would want to use so I mean I had a I had a couple of VCs that I talked to that were like hey would you get rid of your WeFunder and refund all of that money if we came on board. And I was like, no, I, I wouldn't. These are people who want to be involved and these are people I want involved. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that idea. I think we're, I think we're seeing variations of this too, becoming more popular where a founder is kind of taking piece, a part of the fundraise and creating like an SPV or a WeFunder or whatever and giving access to other founders uh, or like smaller check sizes. And those, yeah. and, and there's this whole idea of like the the inverse of like the smaller the check size, typically it's like the, the usually those people help you way more uh, than even like the bigger, you know, investors in the round. And there's like this whole thing with that. So uh, really cool that you did that. I thought that was like super innovative. I think we're gonna see more of it. Uh, so kudos to you for doing it. Cause I do know that there's a lot you know, since you're removing the accreditation piece, 
uh, there's a lot of work that goes into the founder to spin up a uh, a campaign on uh, WeFundRail Republic or whatever the you know the different sites yeah. are. So uh, I know it's not it's not like you can just go put your pitch deck on there and call it a day. There's a, there's a lot you got to go through. So um, yeah, it's awesome. it's not like kicks it's not like Kickstarter at all. Like you you have <laughs> to like really prove a lot of stuff to be able to do this. Yeah. One of the last things kind of just wrapping up here is, you know, you mentioned uh, you're a holistic health coach. I would love just to talk about that for a little bit. Uh, you know, how's that translated in, into you as a person and your journey? And, and I guess what is a, a holistic health coach? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be honest, like I do very little health coaching and did very little even after getting certified. It, I don't really love one-on-one -on -one work, so it wasn't super great for me. But I went through that because I, I really needed to leave tech. Like I was like, I am living in this like fake universe bubble. And I felt like I wasn't contributing anything super meaningful to the world. At the time, my sister was working. She, she was a surge tech working on like emergency labor and delivery. And I, she's my younger sister. And there definitely was this weird part of me that was like, oh, she's like saving lives and I'm building productivity software. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, like, I don't know. I just went through like this, like really soul crushing, yeah. like, is this really what I'm doing with my life? Um, and obviously like eating disorders and addiction and mental health and stuff like that had always been super important to me. And it's something that traditional medicine has done, you know, not a great job at addressing. So, and I also was never going to go to med school. So I was like the other reason that wasn't going to work, but um, yeah, I just needed a break and it was a nine month program. And I, if nothing else, I was like, this will be useful for me. But my plan there was to use what I learned during that time to help build like a healthier workspace and work environment. Uh, we talk a lot about like culture at workplaces and nobody seems to, well, I guess that's changing now, but for a long time, like nobody included health in that. They were like, oh, we've got beer on tap and wine on tap and like a ping pong table and this is our culture. And it's like, cool, we're all working 16 hour days and sleeping under our desks. And like, this isn't sustainable and this isn't healthy. Like, what are we doing here? So yeah. I just wanted to step away, get educated and come back to tech in a way that I could really provide like value to the teams that I worked on. And it's something that now building build back Billbox, I'm so happy that I did because it's like these are things I can build into our company culture. And what that means is like, you know, what is a healthy like life work balance and what is sustainable? And, you know, we're we I have mandatory time off for my employees. And I think that's a huge thing. Like we talk a lot about like unlimited time off. And it's like, cool, I had that at Mixmax. I took two days off uh yeah. the entire time I'd been there. So um, having mandatory time off and things like that, making sure that we're looking at health. And I mean, Billbox is like based on holistic health. It's mental health, physical health, financial health. And so holistic would also include spiritual health in there for people who buy into that or whatever. And I don't really know where I land there, but I have my own spiritual practices. And by that, I mean, I have a prayer candle right here and like a deck of tarot <laughs> cards um but like looking at like full body humans and treating them like humans and so I'm I'm really excited to be able to lead a company where I'm final say on things and that means like I I love the idea of like the buck stops with me 
Um, And like, obviously like there's investors involved in this and that, but I've been able to pick those people very strategically. But like, yeah, I want to know that if the people in the people who work for Billbox are not healthy and it's because of our work environment, it's something I have full control of changing. And I just hope, and this is one of the first things I say when we're hiring or interviewing people, it's like, if there is ever a point that like something isn't working and we are ruining the life part of work-life balance, like you can come directly to me. Um, Like it is, it is really important to me that as we're building this health focused company, that that like translates into how our company looks and acts and works. What are, what are some of the, um, what are some of the practices you maybe you took from that nine month journey of holistic health and applying to the workplace? Like, so mandatory time off, is there anything else, you know, maybe unique or, or, you know, maybe that's not standard that you see that you're trying to bring in as part of that like holistic practice? Well, we have, so the office space in my backyard, which will eventually be the box headquarters where we can all work together in person. Uh, there was an extra room in the back that like I've put my spin bike in and that was a gym before and will be a gym again and letting people have that, um, you know, parental leave is a big one, letting people decide their own work hours to some extent, like obviously we're a startup, which means we all have to work together very closely, but like, I'm, I'm someone who works better in the evenings. And so, you know, having people be able to set when their like core focus hours are, and, you know, even though we have core work hours where we have meetings scheduled during that time, like when it's focus time and like heads down work time that people can pick those times themselves. Um, the other thing is, is I have added a therapy um, stipend into our benefits, like on top of health insurance, like there is a separate therapy or coaching or counseling stipend. So that's something that Mixmax has in their work-life balance package and something I took advantage of. And, um, you know, we actually had a diversity and inclusion group come in and do something at Mixmax. And uh, one of those people became one of my counselors. And so Um, making sure that we are prioritizing that and then giving people two hours a week off um, for whatever that means to them related to their like mental, spiritual, physical health. It's amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough, Lex, for uh, coming on, uh, sharing your story. I know some of that's not even, uh, some of that's not easy. Uh, Thanks for for DMing me and and everything we've done on Twitter together. Uh, Really looking forward for you guys for, for launch and, be part of this story. So thanks so much for coming on uh, and I'll see you on Twitter.